Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. everyone, I'm joined today by Helen. Um, for those who don't know, Helen is on Instagram as the incredible at real life midwife. So not only is she a midwife, she's also, I'm going to say an expert or a researcher in trauma, um, specifically birth and other trauma. And I cannot wait to pick Helen's brain today um, once she shares her story, of course. So we'll be talking about trauma, about grief, um, the language we use in this space as well, because Helen and I are both very opinionated <laughs> and stubborn about why it matters. And hopefully we get to talk a bit about post-traumatic growth as well. But yeah, I want to give Helen as much space as possible because I think she's a world of insight and I am so grateful that she agreed to come on today. So thank you. I'll, I'll shut up now. No, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you for pumping my tyres at this <laughs> morning. <laughs> Um, so I never know where to begin my story. It probably begins by me being a midwife. So I've been a midwife for almost 13 years, I think. And it's a job that I love. It's a job that has offered me a wealth of experiences in so many different settings. And currently I'm working as an academic. So I teach the next generation of midwifery clinicians and I'm also researching. So I'm probably getting to the middle of my PhD, which keeps getting delayed every time I have a baby. Um, and on that note, I am a very proud mum of two little babies, one who is here earthside with me and one who is in the stars. Um, both of my babies have introduced me to really to the topic of perinatal psychological trauma. Unfortunately, it has not been an easy journey for us to have our babies. So I think that really opened my eyes as a clinician and a parent. And I think I'm still staggered by what the literature tells us in terms of the rates of people who have similar experiences in terms of their mental health and in terms of perinatal trauma. So um, I really see my position in this space as someone who's trying to work to raise the acknowledgement of this topic and improve our responses given how prevalent it is in people who are having babies. Um, and ideally, one day we might get to a point where we can prevent it. But um, where we are at the moment, I think we're in a position where we need to respond and treat rather than focus on prevention. From what I can see, you're doing a very, very good job of that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I wish I didn't have to, but yeah, it's it's absolutely that. It's I wish I wasn't here. I wish I wish I could have the privilege of being a midwife on Instagram who talks about the mundane stuff like caring for your baby's umbilical cord and how to change a nappy and mm. um, the quirks of pregnancy. But instead I'm here, yeah, in this very, very difficult and uncomfortable and unpleasant area. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of your experience, if you're happy mm -hmm. to go there. Yeah, of course. Yep. Um, 
We know grief and trauma is a big part of it. Yep. And I just want to acknowledge that even though on paper those aren't necessarily considered mental illnesses, Mm -hmm. I still think we cannot dismiss the fact that grief and trauma impact our mental health. 100%. So often people just think, oh, it's just a bad time. Yes. And the thing is, I think the key point there is that, yes, grief might be a normal thing to experience in our life but it's an uncomfortable unpleasant experience and so why should we not support people who are going through that you know holding space holding them providing resources and support and then also acknowledging the fact that grief can go pear-shaped you know it, it can yes as you say impact mental health it can impact our functioning it can impact every facet of our lives in terms of uh, work relationships social life enjoyment of things so parenting if it's me (laughs) so you know we can write it off as a normal life experience but I think it's important not to I think that minimizes how it impacts on us when we are experiencing it oh absolutely so from your experience was this something you've had a history of um no I wouldn't say I'd had a history of it I mean I think I'd been pinged with the anxiety label before but when I look back on that it was in relation to periods of poor health and it pales in comparison to um, my experiences when having babies. And I think like with my first pregnancy, which was my little girl, Amelia, I experienced terrible morning sickness. And um, as a midwife, I, I downplayed it massively. I thought this is morning sickness. This is what it is. It'll resolve. You'll get through this. But it made me very, very miserable to the point where I remember thinking, I want to go back to every person I've ever had an antenatal consult with and give them a hug and say, I am so sorry. I did not ask the questions. I did not consider how you were tracking mentally with this. It's It was really awful for me. And um, I was towards the end of the first trimester when I realised this has affected my mental health. I am I have a very low mood. I'm feeling really down about this. Um, And so I decided to go and be proactive and go to my GP and ask for help. And she completely dismissed me. So she she offered me no help whatsoever um, because she didn't want, this was her reasoning, she didn't want to prescribe me anything because she didn't want the responsibility of being accountable for something if the medication caused a problem, which is fine. um, But... It was my first experience of being a patient, if you like, mm. and having the knowledge and skills to advocate and ask for something and being completely rebuffed and then powerless to actually get help. And so that was, I guess, the turning point in many senses of what happened afterwards. Yeah. So in terms yeah. of the medication she didn't want to prescribe, are we talking for the nausea and vomiting? For the nausea or? and vomiting. Yeah. I thought if I get some treatment here, I can... Um, Your moods would improve. Exactly. If I can yeah. maybe not resolve my symptoms but decrease them mm-hmm. um, because at that point I was vomiting pretty violently daily and I wasn't eating at all. Like I, I had zero enjoyment for food. Even if I wasn't, if I was able to stomach it, just felt like I was putting cardboard in my mouth 
it was really unpleasant. And, you know, when I look back on the complications that happened in that pregnancy, I wonder whether if better nutrition at that time might have helped us. Which would have only been possible if the nausea was... I could tolerate, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very complicated, but it's just, I have to live with these questions now. And I also think about you know, how many other people have been impacted by these experiences of thinking, okay, well, I need help now. I'm going to go and ask the question. And then the response to that question is, no, I'm not helping you. Yeah. It seems like such a common experience that, you know, in that pregnancy space, especially, or even in the breastfeeding space, you know, we know our mental health is suffering, but unfortunately, you know, your first line you know, defense, your GPs and stuff can sometimes say, well, no, I'm not going to give you this because it's going to impact X, Y, Z. Yes. And, and we hold on to that and we suffer ourselves because it's been reinforced that what's best for us is not best for the baby. Without looking at the mental health as a priority. It's, yeah. yeah. So yeah. this was your first experience yeah. um, with your yep. daughter. Yeah. Um, and how was the rest of the pregnancy in that sense for your mental health? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the first speed bump, I guess, was that period of low mood in that first trimester. And fortunately, the nausea and vomiting began to resolve around 19 weeks. Unfortunately, this was about the time that I went for my anatomy scan and um, they found that the baby was looking very small. No Um, I guess problems detected other than a small baby and this was at a regional hospital the guy who did the scan was incredibly laid back like when I think about that appointment now I see him as lying horizontal in the chair doing the scan (laughs) he was so laid back um and so was that comforting or not comforting well at the time I guess I was like okay he's not concerned I I'm a midwife I have um understanding of small babies and you know, all of the considerations there. And he said to me, yes, I was about 19 or 20 weeks. And he said to me, it's fine. Um, The midwives will follow up with you at your next appointment at 26 weeks. So, you know, six-ish weeks away. So as a parent, I was like, okay, he's, he's labeled it small, but not concerned. And, you know, good to wait six weeks till the next review. But I just couldn't get that feeling out of my head that, something wasn't right. I thought, why Why is the baby so small at this point? It just didn't feel right. So I ended up texting a friend of mine who's an obstetrician and I said, what would you do if this was one of your patients? And he said, I'd get a second opinion scan, you know, come down to Melbourne and get a second opinion and let's see what's going on. And I was so glad that he did that because I think this is at the point where um, I started to worry and I started to lose the rational thinking part of the brain. So I couldn't think straight and I needed full direction really. So we went down the following week for another scan in Melbourne and um, obviously it was more detailed and they confirmed the baby was really, really small and actually they suspected that the placenta um was causing problems there. So they found the reason. So there we were sort of 20, 21 weeks with a major problem um, on our hands. And so this kicked off the rest of the pregnancy really. Um, Obviously a baby at 20, 21 weeks won't survive if it's born or if it needs to be born. Um, When the placenta is not functioning that well, it threatens the life of the mum too because it can cause a condition called preeclampsia. 
Um, and unfortunately, I was showing signs of it at that point. Um, so we had this really awful period of um, being at 20, 21 weeks and having to wait to see what the outcome would be because they couldn't help the baby. They can't do anything on the inside. They can't help the baby if it's going to pass away at that point. Um, and if the mum is getting sick, then really the only treatment is to deliver the baby and deliver the placenta, which means that the baby would pass away by default. So it was a really, really awful position of just we have to wait and see every day as a battle. Um, so I had to go home and I cannot verbalise what that period did to me. It felt like I was living with a bomb in my tummy and the bomb could go off at any point. I couldn't see the countdown. You know, I was scared to sneeze in case I set the bomb off. So it, it was really where my experience with trauma came into play. And unfortunately, because um, healthcare clinicians don't receive formal training in psychological trauma, I didn't recognise what was going on. You know, and I, I probably would have thought, this is actually normal, Helen, you've got these serious problems going on of course you're going to worry and of course you're going to be panicked and of course you're going to be feeling awful all day and all night so I normalized and dismissed it and it did an awful lot of damage <laughs> and in terms of that damage do you want to talk about that yeah so I mean I guess we made it to that period of viability of 24 25 weeks where um, if the baby needs to be born they can intervene and do things to help the baby survive it's not a guarantee um, and they would have also intervened if my preeclampsia worsened to the point where my life was at risk um, so at 25 26 weeks the preeclampsia started getting worse and it was we were looking at a two-week period of you know can we make it to 28 weeks or are we going to need to pull the plug on this um, the baby was incredibly small the placenta was getting worse it was just not a very nice situation. I was on lots of drugs at this point. Um, so it was very much medicalised, serious medicine at play. So I was completely out of my depth as a midwife. And, um, you know, front and centre was really this, this panic um, about the bomb inside me. And in terms of how the pregnancy played out, we actually got very lucky in the sense that I made it to 35 weeks. And this is because of luck um, and also because I had an amazing obstetrician who was willing to monitor me incredibly closely with ultrasounds every one or two days um, to look at the baby's blood flow, um, look for the red flags that said deliver immediately um, and because of that we were able to get as far as we absolutely could. So 35 weeks in terms of a baby being born, it's associated with really good outcomes. So we had a really good outcome in that sense. Um, however, I was hospitalised for a period of that pregnancy. Um, I was traumatised and I lived in that traumatised state until the birth and then, of course, because I had a very small baby in the NICU afterwards the NICU perpetuated that trauma and compounded it and so by the time I finally got my baby home um, my brain was just destroyed mentally so I did not recognize it in myself 
Um, I was probably normalizing what I was feeling and thinking, but I was very, very scared all the time. I had some very scary thoughts going on. Um, but I think if I'd looked at myself as an outsider, I would have been quite reassured too, because I, as a midwife, I was looking after my baby perfectly. You're functioning, so it's fine. Functioning, yeah. And, oh, she has the knowledge. She's going to feed the baby. She's going to change the nappy. She's going to be able to get the baby to sleep. She's going to be able to remember to take her medicine and get to the GP for the blood pressure check. And I was ticking all of those boxes. Um, but I think that comes with the hypervigilance side of the trauma. You know, I was... I was all about ticking the boxes, but behind closed doors, I was seriously unwell and nobody, not even myself, recognised that until we got to about six weeks postpartum. And I think um, it says a lot that <laughs> it took six weeks of the sleep deprivation for it to really snowball to the point where I thought I'm in danger here. Um, and basically I woke up one day, I had some very, very scary intrusive thoughts um, and I thought I can't, I can't live with this anymore. I feel really unsafe. I'm home alone with the baby because husband's back at work. Everyone's departed because you've hit the magic six weeks where everything's apparently fine. Mm. Um, and so what I did was I rang the um, mental health crisis team at the local hospital and <laughs> I spoke to a male and I think I'd just finished a breastfeed. And I said to him, I can't do this anymore. I can't do another breastfeed. <laughs> and he, he was like, what do you mean? Tell me about the breastfeeding. And I was like, oh, it's not about breastfeeding, you fool. Like, but I, this is the thing. It's so hard. Even four years later, I, I cannot um, describe what was going on. Um, you were in that state of panic. Yeah, and I, the, the brain was just completely the functional, rational intelligent brain was completely off so I couldn't get words out I just knew this is bad I'm panicking I don't don't feel good and I don't feel safe and in my head I was making plans to escape because I thought I I can't look after this baby um I'm not good for my husband so I need to leave them be but I need to leave them be in a way that I know that they're going to be okay and I'll just get out because this life isn't for me um which that's why I was scared because I was beginning to think what what does that mean, you know? Mm. Um, but that was a really positive experience with the crisis team because within two hours I had two ladies on my doorstep who were plain clothed, who were incredibly nurturing, made a cup of tea. One of them held the baby and um, as a midwife, I remember looking at it and thinking, oh, gosh, don't separate the mother and the baby. But it was I desperately wanted the baby away and see I'm, I've reverted to calling her the baby. I was yeah. completely separating from her. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted, yeah, when one of them took the baby, I just thought, great, you hold the baby and I'm going to sit here. And obviously they were completing a mental health assessment on me at the time, but they did it in such a skilled way that I wouldn't have known what they were doing. And at the end of that, they said, look, I think you need to be admitted. And I thought, hallelujah, I'm going to get some help. Um, unfortunately, as happens way too often, the unit was um, full. 
full, no beds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had a bag packed and they said, look, in the next couple of days, you know, if a bed becomes available, you'll get admitted. So just be on standby. In the meantime, I'd called my mum over to be with me 24-7. And so I'm very lucky that I have a mum who's willing and able to do that. And um, they got me an emergency appointment with a psychiatrist. We got some medication going, got a couple of diagnoses going. And very much fortunately, with that support and medication, my symptoms began to resolve. So within a few days, the thoughts were easing and I felt like I was, yeah, the burden was being lifted somewhat from my shoulders. So that was absolutely the turning point. But I would say that it took me a good three to four months after that to get to a point where I felt human again. Um, You know, I, I got to a point of mental good health but I think I was changed completely because there I was as a midwife, you know, who I I thought I had decent clinical and theoretical knowledge in my head and I'd been completely blindsided. And my first experience having a baby was just something that I had zero knowledge about, zero preparation for, and it forever changed my brain. Trauma works on the brain in a way that's similar to a brain injury and that's with me for life now. So I guess that prompted my professional desire to work in this space. Um, I think it's incredibly powerful that I have the lived experience to speak to. I wish I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's understandable. Yeah. Um, In terms of the diagnosis, you said that the assessment team came in. Did they pick up on the trauma or was it diagnosed as depression? So the the two clinicians that came in, I, I think they're mental health nurses, but this is what I think was terrific about the service is that I as a health clinician couldn't pick it. I couldn't see them doing the mental health assessment. I couldn't tell you what professional backgrounds they had. There were no health or mental health terminology or jargon used I just felt incredibly nurtured it was like two people two nice women on my couch having a cup of tea with me which is 100% what it needs to be and I just think that speaks to their skill you know this is an emergency response team and they did their job phenomenally Mm. Um, the the words and the diagnoses came when I saw the psychiatrist and it was primarily, they called it postnatal depression. And that really stung because I have a lot of familiarity with that, obviously, professionally. And I just was hearing the word depression, 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 depression. And I was like, you're wrong. I am not depressed. I am so highly strung. I am hypervigilant. I am so anxious. I am on edge. I can't rest. I'm so panicky nothing about me is depressed. No. I'm the other end of the scale. Um, so, I mean, I guess they they checked the right box in terms of postnatal mood disorder. There was a mood disorder. Mm. Um, but it wasn't till a couple of months later that I got the PTSD diagnosis. And then when I began to think about that more and learn more about it and hear more from the professions that were treating me, that I went, okay, this sits with me perfectly. What you are describing is completely what is going on for me. Um, And that's, I guess, when I began to realise, hang on, how how is it that I don't have any understanding or knowledge or anything that Mm. relates to PTSD? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially postpartum 
depression and postpartum PTSD, they're more often than not comorbidities. Yes. You know, there's no checklist. There's no questionnaire for birth trauma, for PTSD. So yeah, often it does get swept under the rug of depression. And that's, you know, as you said, it is ticking a mood disorder box. Yay. We're getting treatment. Trauma stays with us for a very long time. And yeah, I'll let you talk on that because I know you're very passionate about this. Yeah, so it wasn't until earlier this year, actually, that another psychiatrist I was talking to used the words brain injury with me. And it hit me like a bus because I was like, what? Like brain injury? No, this is for people that have been hit by buses or, you know, other sort of pathologies. That isn't me. I haven't had that experience but then when I thought about her words and I thought about my knowledge of trauma's impact on the brain and the symptoms and how it manifests I was like she's right it's just a an invisible brain injury that people aren't looking for and aren't aware of Um, Mm -hmm. and so in that sense it does change the brain and I think if you have perfect treatment perfect awareness perfect support then it doesn't need to be lifelong. But the thing about trauma is that it only takes one little trip and you're back in that space. Um, And so when I say it's lifelong, that's what I mean. I I might have perfect mental health for the next 20 years, but then something unexpected comes up and I'm straight back to where I was. And this is where the word trigger comes in. Yes. And as you and I have spoken about (laughs) on several occasions, that word has been co-opted. Yep. As you alluded to earlier, I think you and I are very, very considered about what language we use. Mm. I don't use the word trigger in my own life. I'm happy to use it for others if it works for them. Um, But when it's about me, I don't use the word trigger purely because, yes, it's been co-opted. It's been bastardised. It's for some reason acceptable for people to say they're triggered by the amount of froth on their cappuccino or something, which, you know, I can't really picture a psychologically traumatic event that involves a level of froth on a cappuccino but you know Mm. if if that's a legit trigger I'm very happy to acknowledge that Um, it's just that more often than not people use it when they don't have a history of a trauma disorder or symptoms Um, and for that reason it's lost its meaning it's lost its um, strength I guess and I don't use it. I think the word trigger as well, It's it's got quite violent connotations. So if you think about the trigger on a gun, things like that. So I, I don't like it for those reasons. Um, and I think there is, there's much more gentle language we can use to talk about what's being referred to when we talk about trauma triggers. And some examples of that would be? Prompting. Um, prompting a trauma response. I'm mm-hmm. having a trauma response. Yeah. And really it's it's not about the trigger. You know, if I think about my triggers, one of them being an ultrasound in pregnancy, the ultrasound in pregnancy is not the problem. It's the response no. to that. It's the, the cluster of symptoms that I get. Mm. When I think about having an ultrasound in pregnancy or when I am faced with that. Yeah. And same thing with the word trauma in the sense that people use trauma to suggest a bad memory or a bad experience. Yes. Yep. And that's true. Yeah. Um, And sometimes these discussions play out um, in social media and I've seen a couple of news articles about, you know, the language in the space of psychological trauma and yeah, so trauma, trauma's mainstream as well. People talk about their traumas and it's not okay. It's not okay to bastardize what is a mental health term for something or for when you don't actually have a background, when it's not actually a traumatic event associated with 
a trauma response. Um, but unfortunately, that's happened. It's happened in many mental health um, situations. Like I'm sure we've talked about the word um, OCD. I'm, yes. I'm OCD about this. That's another one that's gone to the to the masses. Um, and like that is not to dismiss people who have. Yeah an actual diagnosis and the symptoms yes but there's yep. this self-diagnosis trend yep. that I keep seeing but also just normalizing it too just saying well this behavior I have this personality trait I have I'm going to label it as this mm. yeah it's glamorized and I think it's it's very problematic to normalize what is an actual mental health a legit mental health symptom or yeah disorder so now these terms have lost their meaning and relevance, I think. Mm. I don't know if we are going to be able to get them back and that's why I think part of my work is focusing on language and proper use of language, educating, but I don't mm. know if we'll get those terms back. So, yeah. And I don't know the answer either because I want to normalise these experiences because mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to feel shame mm -hmm. for having that, you know, that diagnosis, that label. Mm. But at what point are we normalising normalizing too exactly. much yes. that <laughs> we're taking away that experience mm. and just sprinkling it around for everyone yep. to be a little exactly. bit OCD? You pick it up and see, see where it fits in your life and then you can yeah. use it. Yeah. I think even the word normal is problematic for me. Oh, completely. Because I get these questions all the time. I'm having these symptoms or I'm having this experience. Is it is normal? Is it normal? And my response is always, you know, I'm not going to tell you whether it's normal or not. I'm, I'm going to tell you it's common. But, mm. you know, you need to see the right professions mm. in order for that to be confirmed as whether it's normal or not. You know, someone, even the world's greatest midwife on Instagram, which I'm not, but mm. even the world's greatest professions on Instagram cannot diagnose you over that platform. It's completely no. inappropriate. Mm. <sighs> and I mean, I'm from the horse now, but yeah. No, I, I love it when you're on your high horse because <laughs> I just, I learned so much. <laughs> um, I truly. Poor horse. He's, he's, no. he's a bit sore from the heavy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you do such incredible work and you raise awareness of these experiences, but also the narratives around these experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's a reason you're so passionate. I'm mm -hmm. going to go back to potentially Instagram or potentially what you do in your research space. Sure. You don't just look at birth trauma. Yep. You've made a point that it's birth and other trauma. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's a very big reason for this, which yes. I'm hoping you'll, yes. you'll shed light on yeah. this, please. Let's get to that. Yeah, that's that's probably my least favourite term is birth <laughs> trauma, which mm. is not to dismiss from people who have legitimate birth trauma because, of course, I work with these people. Um, but I think the problem is if the term was birth or other trauma um, or perinatal psychological trauma, um, something that encompasses the acknowledgement that we can have trauma at any point in that spectrum, preconception right through to postpartum, mm -hmm. any time in that point trauma can occur. And I think if there was that widespread mainstream acknowledgement, then my problems might have been picked up by myself or someone else earlier Mm. Um, and I would not be left with the experience that I had and the um, consequences it had for me in my life. Um, so that that's my problem with it is um, that people are out there having 
significant battles with preconception, you know, miscarriages, ectopic pregnancies, pregnancy complications, postpartum complications. It's really not limited to birth, even though birth probably contributes a, a large proportion of people who identify as having trauma in this space. Um, I think we're blinded somewhat to the fact that it can happen elsewhere. Um, mm. Yeah. For sure. And this was something you experienced, or should I say re-experienced, if you're happy to talk about <clears throat> Lincoln. Yes, yep. Um, so I think to continue with the birth and other trauma term, I've had two mm. births. And both of my births have been really good. They've been, for the most part, uncomplicated. They haven't um, presented any health complications for me. Um, and I look back at my births and I have positive memories. So birth trauma for me is something that I just think, no, that, that does not fit what happened to me. What happened to me was two really bad pregnancies um, and so after Amelia was born, like I said, the first few months were really very, very difficult battle with mental health symptoms. Um, but once we got to about six months postpartum, I turned the corner, things were looking good. I was beginning to enjoy her. And previously I'd said no more babies. I am not doing that again. That was horrendous. And I think that's incredibly valid. Like when I look at that experience, I think no one else should go through that. Um, but of course, when I started to enjoy her, I started to enjoy life. I started to feel like myself. Um, she was probably about 10 or 11 months old. I went back to work. So I got some form of my old identity back. I was functional. That's when I began to think maybe I can have another baby, but I just need to think very seriously about how we manage this, knowing what happened last time. You know, I had to stop work at like 26 weeks or something, um, obviously huge impact on my mental health and now we have a baby or a toddler to think about too you know I can't just be rushing to the toilet to spew every couple of seconds when I'm responsible for supervising a kid not to mention you know if the mental state I was in then would not be conducive to looking after a toddler so there were lots of things to think about um and so I think she was um probably one and a half or so maybe a bit older and I went and had a preconception appointment with my obstetrician basically just to hear about the statistics in terms of recurrence get a game plan in place what was he going to do if xyz occurred what was I going to do to make sure that you know I was in the best health that I had um you know support and resources ready to go and so I was equipped with that information, probably sat on it for a few months, and then my husband and I decided that it was worth the gamble. Um, and ironically, Millie was um, conceived without much thought. She was, <laughs> I found out I was pregnant two weeks before we got married. So it was like, oh, okay. Um, so we assumed that the next time would be easy. And in fact, it took like seven or eight cycles, I think. So it was a very long, much longer, much more planned in a sense if you can ever say that but we did get pregnant with little Lincoln um so of course the focus of that pregnancy for me was the first trimester was am I going to be that unwell again am I going to be spewing and nauseous and not able to eat um and then of course thinking about the baby's growth and the placenta am I going to be having the preeclampsia again so um, the first trimester was amazing. I felt so much better. I was able to eat and I thought this is why people have babies, multiple babies, is because this is the experience. You know, I had very mild nausea on some days but it was so manageable. 
So I felt really good. It was amazing. And then as we kept having ultrasounds sort of towards the end of the first trimester, early second trimester, the baby's growth was looking good. The placenta was looking good. All of our tests were coming back perfectly. And I thought we're going to win. We are going to have the pregnancy that most people have, that most people emerge from feeling, you know, somewhat mentally intact. And then we went for the anatomy scan which was, of course, where it all went wrong with Millie or the start of it all. And so it was a major trigger for me and I'd done a lot of work to be able to face it. And, um, of course, COVID reared its ugly head. A few days before the anatomy scan was booked, we went into another lockdown and, of course, they were booting partners out. So and just for context, you're in Victoria. I'm well. in Victoria, so you know, the state of the lockdown. Um, <laughs> I think they're going to put that on the licence plate soon. <laughs> Um, so I rang the clinic where the ultrasound was booked and I said, I get it. I, I fully support the restrictions. You know, I know why, but I have PTSD. You know, I have a significant background with anatomy scans. I need my husband there. And they were like, no, nah, can't be done. Um, if it was going to be done, we need weeks of meetings and forms and psychiatrist letters and all of this stuff it can't be done for an appointment that's in a few days and I just was like okay so I went to the appointment alone well my husband was in the weight room because there was no way I was not going to the hospital with him there yeah but I was fairly confident because all of our scans to that point the growth had been fine so I think I, I let myself go to that appointment thinking you know we might get lucky it might be okay um, and also recognising that the ultrasound was in the baby's best interest. It wasn't in my best interest. It was in the baby's best interest. So I did it. And unfortunately, again, we got news at the end of the scan that while the baby's growth was perfect, the placenta was perfect, our little baby had multiple significant abnormalities. And again, they didn't know what that meant. Um but there's something to be said for a mother's instinct and, you know, the technology, the tech, textbooks, clinical knowledge, none of that will tell you about maternal instinct, but it's there. I know it's there. Um, when I walked into the ultrasound room, I just got this pang of something's going to be wrong. We're going to get a major abnormality here. And you know, if, if the ultrasound had gone well, you know, I probably wouldn't give a second thought to that thought that I had walking in the room. But, of course, we did have the significant abnormalities and I knew at the end of the appointment when I was hearing that news, we weren't going to be taking him home. I had enough clinical knowledge to know that the couple of things he had were, they had to be related. Um, they weren't something that were, they weren't going to resolve. Um, so I, I just knew and... Some of the doctors were quoting me like a 95% chance that it would be nothing and 5% chance that it would be something serious. And I knew that actually that would be reversed. I thought, no, it's 95% chance something serious here. And unfortunately, we did all the tests. We did lots of investigations. I had an amniocentesis a few days later, like it was an emergency scramble to get it done given that ultrasound I had an MRI I had multiple more ultrasounds because they were trying to get a better picture of what was going on with these abnormalities and what they meant 
Um, and unfortunately, I'm just going to skip through what is a very difficult time for me. That I, I don't want to put it out there because I, it's scary and I, yeah. don't, I don't think it helps anyone to hear this part. Mm. But he um, unfortunately passed away at seven, 27 weeks of the pregnancy. Um, but my birth with him was beautiful. It was long, but <laughs> I'm glad that he gave me that long labour, which was more time with him. Um, we had some time with him after birth. So I have a lot of pleasant memories um, of Lincoln. Um, it's just unfortunate that he didn't make it and he's not with us physically today. Um but I'm also grateful, I guess, for him giving me his story and what that adds to mine um, and, I guess, my ability to have a voice for people, the vast amount of people and families who have lost a pregnancy or a baby. And I don't even know what to ask now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's... One of that's that's where language has become front and center really is because when a baby dies, how do you know what to say? No one has got a an internal textbook of okay, chapter five. When the baby dies, this is what you say to someone. And that's okay. You know, a lot of people have said to me, I don't want to text you because I don't know what to say. And I say to them, that's actually the best thing you can say is say you don't have the words, you know, rather than scrambling for something that might actually be really upsetting, which people have done. And, you know, um, having lost a baby, I would say that people's actions and words have been part of the most upsetting part of the whole deal, which is really sad. Mm. Um, you know, it's all stuff that didn't need to happen and it did mm. and it compounded and I think that leads into you've probably spoken about this on Instagram yeah. trauma is not necessarily the event itself sometimes how people respond to the event mm -hmm. will determine how you yourself have internalized that event and that trauma yes it's very much a um like a community or village event in a sense because we know that, yeah, it's really not about the actual experience or the event in itself because everyone will have a different response to... The same event. Exactly. Yeah. And this is why I'm trying to get this message out, I guess, to the health professionals that you can't look at a birth on paper and mm -hmm. label it as traumatic for that person. That really sits with them. And I know I've worked with people who have the most beautiful births on paper, ones that as a midwife I'd say, please give me that, you know, that's such a gorgeous birth, but they're traumatised by it. Mm -hmm. And you can't argue with that. You, no. We have no, no position as health professionals to be able to say, no, that's not a traumatic birth. It is what it is. Um, likewise, you can have a birth that on paper looks horrible, Mm. say that must be traumatic for that person that went through that and it's not necessarily the case yeah um so it's really not about looking at the event it's about looking at the person's response to that event mm. and yeah the people around us can be incredibly powerful in how we perceive and respond to that event so I think if people around me had been able to acknowledge what had gone on for me with Amelia's pregnancy you know I might have got help earlier and prevented that spiral and I might have had a nicer time in the first few months with her um I might have 
prevented a you know further mental health decline which would have been amazing <laughs> um and the same with Lincoln I guess is that for the most part people validated and said yes it's shit yes it's devastating it's tragic um but when people don't have that response unfortunately it has this effect of encouraging someone to suppress what is their natural response um or dismiss it and um the snowball effect effect of that is that it delays or prevents help seeking which has huge ramifications oh absolutely did you actually seek help? Um, so I think because we'd done so much work to prepare for that pregnancy, I had a lot of support already in place. So as soon as we had that anatomy scan, I remember going to my psychologist <laughs> and it was like deja vu, you know, after the last time it was like, oh gosh, terrible anatomy scan, you know, mental health plummeting. But I had the supports in place. I had my game plan and I had the knowledge this time to recognise trauma symptoms in myself. So in that sense, it's really interesting because I still see Millie's pregnancy as the worst, the worst of the two. You know, he was growing perfectly. The placenta was growing perfectly. I had no signs of preeclampsia. But, of course, you know, I wouldn't wish Lincoln's pregnancy on anyone and I wish he was still here. Um, so I had my supports in place. Um, I think what I wasn't prepared for is that I had a completely different um, psychological response and I'm going to add um, a content note here because I actually experienced suicidal thoughts Mm-hmm. for the last few weeks of that pregnancy. And that took me by surprise because mm. that hadn't happened with Millie. I had the escaping thoughts, but I hadn't had any thoughts of harm. Um, but, yeah, that plagued me with Lincoln and that was horrible because I was trying to keep myself and him alive, but I just wanted to get out. And I think, you know, looking at that, I it, it really just reflects that I just didn't want to be there, you know, my somewhat perfect pregnancy was turning into a nightmare yet again and I just I just wanted to pull the plug um I think what's interesting there is that it's um not well handled in healthcare either because I never felt like my disclosures I was very open with that um I never felt like my disclosures were taken seriously and I think people probably looked at me and thought she's pregnant she's a health professional, she's got a toddler. And really, like the fact that I had a toddler is probably the reason I'm alive today because I couldn't entertain any any thoughts there. But I certainly had a plan, but no one asked me about it. <laughs> and I know I'm speaking very candidly, but I do think it's important because no one needs to be comfortable with talking about suicide, but we need no. to know we can go there if, mm. if, if it presents. And um, you know, if there are any health professionals listening here, there are a couple of questions, like two or three questions that you can pop in your toolkit to ask about people who might disclose um, suicidal thoughts or who you suspect might be at risk of that. You know, as something as simple and direct as saying, do you have a plan, you know, gets you in the door. So it's actually incredibly easy. It just makes us uncomfortable. And um in society we like to avoid stuff that makes us uncomfortable so it's easy just to ignore and not go there um but we're not doing 
ourselves or the people we work with any um, service by doing that. Yeah. That's also the reason you don't particularly like using the word trigger warning. Exactly, yeah. Um, And really, like, trigger warning is probably, um, it would have eventuated because of an acknowledgement of potentially triggering content. So it's been used to alert people with trauma to the fact that this might be a distressing um, topic. And so it's giving them an opt-out. Here's the topic, you can scroll on past or whatever. But as we know, everyone's triggers are not... They're not predictable. No. Um, So I can tell you a couple of mine, Mm. but I also can't predict when something's going to be triggering to me. Mm. And the the other side of it is the research that has been done that looks at trigger warnings in relation to people who have trauma. Essentially, the research says they're either not helpful or potentially harmful because, of course, the term trigger warning, it's got trigger and warning, it sounds scary. So, Mm. you know, it can begin to initiate that trauma response of a raised heart rate or panicky or anxious hypervigilance or whatever. Um, So it's already producing the negative response that we are trying to not have. So that's where it can cause harm. And then, you know, the other side of the stick is it might not be a an actual trigger for them. So we're using it unnecessarily. You know, if we're going to do it properly, you need to put it at the top and you need to put the actual topic so that people know. Mm. If you just put a TW or trigger warning, then I don't know whether I can scroll on or read it. Which is why you've used I use content note. Yep, yep, it's a content note. Here's my content. This is what I'm going to talk about today. And that, that applies to everyone mm. because if I'm going to be talking about a particular topic that you know, anyone off the street is looking at and going, yeah, I'm not in the mood for that today, scroll. That's that's perfect. That's so healthy. Mm. It's giving everyone the chance to opt in or opt out. Yeah. And it's not um, it's not triggering, <laughs> you know. It's, it doesn't involve that <laughs> yeah. word. It's not inappropriate use of a mental health term. And I think um, there's a big sort of push in the baby loss community to move away from this because, we would see a lot of people using trigger warnings around baby loss or pregnancy loss or people sharing their story, their particular personal experience with baby loss and being asked to add triggers to it. Um, And that's a classic example of where it's inappropriate because baby loss is an uncomfortable topic. You know, no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to acknowledge the fact that babies die You know, no one wants to willingly get into a conversation about babies dying. It makes us uncomfortable, and so it should. But for the vast majority of our community, the matter of a baby dying is not a triggering topic because it's not going to prompt that bucket of trauma symptoms. Um, And I guess that's, that's my illustration of why it's used inappropriately and it's now lost its meaning. And you've said this so well before, your experience itself didn't come with a trigger Mm, warning yeah no one slapped a trigger warning on all of the parts of my life that were traumatic and would it have helped if it was no probably not no yeah you're right when you say it's used inappropriately and it's also used in a way to dismiss or to shut mothers down Mm. from sharing that experience of baby loss we don't want to hear your experience put a trigger trigger warning warning. on it yeah yeah Yeah. please don't share photos of your baby I mean I understand it look you know there are times where I don't want to see pictures of people's 
babies, particularly if they're passed. I don't want to see, there are times where I don't want to see pictures of anyone who's Mm. passed. Um, But I think that's where it's, you know, appropriate to add a note to it to say this is what's coming, you can opt in or out depending on where you are today. Um, But we don't need to be saying your loss is traumatic for me, Mm. you know. And if I can use one of your terms, which I absolutely adore, you use this phrase, sit in the shit. Yep. Would you care to explain a little bit about that and where that came from and what that means and all of that? So sitting in the shit just means that you are okay to sit with feelings and experiences and thoughts that are unpleasant. So it's about recognising those feelings in your body and seeing the fact that your brain is trying to get away from that. I just want to shut it down and ignore that and go back to my happy life. But sitting in the shit means going, okay, I don't like this. I don't like the way it makes me feel. Every cell in my body is screaming to run, but I'm just going to sit here with those feelings and thoughts. I know they will pass. I'm going to validate those feelings rather than suppress and deny and sort of have this inauthentic happiness or level of comfort. So I I talk about sitting in the shit and I really encourage it because it makes those feelings when they come so much more tolerable and it's actually really healthy because these are valid emotions and thoughts and feelings. They are valid. That is a natural human response to things to feel uncomfortable, to feel upset, to feel sad, to feel angry, to feel shame, grief, whatever. It's valid. Sit with it. It'll pass. But it'll also, it's it's so much healthier to validate them when they're here. Rather than try to avoid them. Yep. Or suppress them or deny them. Because that could lead to, yeah, the behaviours, let's say compulsions or let's say avoidance behaviours or coping mechanisms that may not Mm, quote unquote be healthy yeah yeah and I see it in you know health professionals as well there's topics in there that we don't like and you know the natural response as humans is to avoid but if you can become a little bit better at sitting in the shit um, it makes those moments much more tolerable and it makes you much more comfortable with going into them um and therefore providing much more holistic and comprehensive care, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, as you said before, that doesn't mean sitting in the shit means you have to opt into content, for example, that yeah. you're not feeling that day. Yeah. You know, it just means that when and if those feelings do arise, we're not running away from them. We're not suppressing exactly. them. We're not shaming yeah. ourselves for having those feelings. Yeah. yeah, it's the classic one is, oh, that makes me a bad mum. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm not coping today. I yelled at my kid earlier. I'm feeling shit. Okay, I'm going to suppress those feelings and whatever. It actually means going, all right, okay, why am I feeling like a shit mum? Oh, hang on a sec. Of course, you know, I've had all of this stress. It's been Christmas time, blah, 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 all of the mental load. You know, it's only natural that I blew up at some little thing. Um, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to validate those feelings, but I know that I'm a good parent. I'm going to go in and repair, you know, and the cycle resolves really. Rupture and repair. Yeah. Did you want to share more about how you were coping and some of the supports in place after Lincoln? 
or did you want to talk more about your research? Whatever you're comfortable I with. Talk about whatever you want to. Oh what, my goodness! You think is important for this space? I think all of it is important. So <laughs> I really just want you to be comfortable. Yeah, I'm comfortable with it. I mean, I don't talk about anything that I'm not comfortable with. Mm. Um, so I guess once Lincoln had died, it's funny, isn't it? The brain. I, I'm trying to tap into those memories and they're just not there. So um, a lot of it's repressed and I acknowledge that that is my brain protecting me. Yeah. It might come back in the future and I'll deal with it then. But, yeah, really the first few months is a blur. Um, I started some medicate or restarted some medication when it happened, um, which probably helped, but it, I don't know didn't even feel like a band-aid at the time my brother's girlfriend um we were at his house soon after it happened and she didn't say a word and she just put some watercolor paints down on the table with paper and said go for it really without any words and it was really stupid but I felt like for that moment my brain had turned off mm. So I bought some like watercolour sets and for those first few months at home, watercolouring was really the only thing that I, I describe it as turning my brain off because I think you're so focused on what's in front of you. You're thinking, all right, I'm going to paint a flower or a sunset or whatever it is and you're focused on that image. Um, so watercolouring for me has been a form of therapy and, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that art is a form of therapy for many people talk therapy works for a lot of us and for many situations but it doesn't work 100% of the time and so I think um, you know if we had better awareness of these other forms of legit therapy like art or yoga or whatever you know green therapy oh. even. Um, so that was helpful for me um, to move through those first few months it's another reason where I say the fact that I had Millie was protective because I don't even know how I would have done that if I'd not been forced to get up every morning and be a proper mum. And I'm so cognizant of the fact that I don't want her to have poor mental health because her mum has poor mental health at times. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I really can't talk much about what happened in the first few months. But... Eventually, I guess, I started being more functional day to day. I started to pick up my PhD again. Um, I guess it was reinforced to me with that experience that there was such a need for research in the space and advocacy and not just for the people experiencing it but for maternity care clinicians who do such an incredible job with a huge workload, with huge time pressures in the setting of a pandemic, you know, they've, they've got way too much on their plates already. And so I, I guess I'm always looking at ways to incorporate this into their work in a way that doesn't burden them, um, but in a way that positively impacts people in their care. Um, so I guess that's where my focus is now. You know, Lincoln, if he was alive today, um, he would be, if he was born on his due date, he would have just turned one. Um but, you know, he's not with us. I do feel like a lot of my work, he's present there. I wouldn't be in this space so strongly if he was here today. I'd be being a mum to a 
boisterous one-year-old boy. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm focused on. I guess that's that's my post-traumatic growth. <laughs> and do you want to explain what post-traumatic growth <laughs> is? Because you know, it's not that there needs to be a silver lining after mm, these events. Yes, it's definitely not sugarcoating this. No. Um, but I guess it's a way that I'd describe it is to say that it's a phenomenon where um, something positive comes out of a traumatic experience. And so for me, you know, after Amelia's pregnancy, I was very cognizant of the fact that I had all of this increased knowledge. I had these skills and ability to respond to a huge um, part of our community that have birth or other trauma. Um, And I guess I built that social media space from that, you know, like I can look at all of that and say it's post-traumatic growth. Um, I look at some of the watercolour paintings I'm doing, you know, some are absolute rubbish, but some are quite pretty. (laughs) But I see that as post-traumatic growth because I'm not an arty person. I'm a, yeah, even though I've only got a few brain cells left, I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm a science nerd. I like statistics. That's why I work in research. Um, But in that sense, that only happened because I had a traumatic incidence that propelled me into watercolour painting and yeah I guess all of my work all of my research now everything I'm focused on everything I want to achieve that's an element of post-traumatic growth because it's it's any experience of positive change coming out of those experiences and again it's not something that you know there's a checklist for it's not something that you can come out of a crappy experience and go oh I've got to make this positive it's it's organic and it is what you want to apply the label to um you know if it's as simple as gaining a new skill if it's as simple as refining your friendships if you feel it's post-traumatic growth then you label that yeah no one else gets to own that yeah and just going back to art therapy yep from my own experiences, art therapy was a big component in the mother and baby unit. Yeah. And actually talk therapy wasn't. Yeah. Talk therapy was something that was actually discouraged. And the reason being, when you are in that acute crisis state, there's no amount of talking no. to process your trauma or even debriefing. No, no, just yeah. it wasn't yeah. until I was in, I wasn't in that state of distress or crisis yes. that yeah. it was healthier for me to attempt to do that. You have to be at a more mild or moderate state. And we we did art therapy in the MBU and mm. I'm a terrible I think I'm a terrible mm. artist, but it was it was the one thing we did where we weren't thinking about what we were going yes. through. Yeah. And we continued that when we got discharged and just paint whatever the hell we wanted to. Yes. It was yeah. it could have been crap, it didn't matter. It was the fact that we were there. Yeah, it's so powerful. And I like you said, I wish more people had awareness of that because mm. when I first heard, Oh, we have to go do art therapy, my first instinct, as terrible as this is gonna yeah. sound, is oh, I'm gonna be a typical psych patient because yeah, I just yeah. but <laughs> it actually is yeah. healthy. No, I would have eye rolled too. And I think, you know, my brother's girlfriend that introduced me, she um, works in the counselling space, but with children, but, you know, she, she has a professional background. So I'm sure that she knew what she was doing, but she did it without words. Because I think if she'd said, hey, how about you try, you know, quelling your mind with this watercolour paint set, I would have been like, Guess yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, I'm not a freaking psycho, you know. <laughs> but I was the jokes on me um but you know that all I needed was one session to go oh my gosh that was so helpful for what my mind is going through mm. 
and I'm sure, yeah, she probably sits laughing at me now seeing when I chug out, but, you know, it's still 15 months on continues to be incredibly helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is a bit more of a controversial topic. Mm -hmm. In the space of social media, we see it quite a lot that trauma or birth trauma in particular is associated with only certain types of births or models of care. Yeah. As you said before, it is our response to an event. And that could happen in a hospital, that could happen at home, that could happen under midwifery care, that could happen under obstetric Mm -hmm. care, whether your birth had interventions, whether it didn't. So I want to let you talk about this because there is such a stereotype and I think it does such a disservice to people who experience trauma. So I think firstly, it's incredibly narrow-minded to think that we can narrow this down to one Mm. particular cause, like taking the obstetric violence example mm. and that's not to say it's invalid because it is valid and it does happen it is yes. and it's horrific yes. the biggest finding for that from that paper the recent paper was that there is a lack of clarity around that term mm. so for me I was like okay the term doesn't work let's find a better one mm. that's my issue <laughs> um, but yes it's a very narrow-minded thing to think we can just pop it down to one particular cause and if we get rid of that cause everyone's going to be happy days. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'll say about social media is that everyone's got an agenda. So you can look at my page and whatever I post, there's an agenda. So you need to take it all with a grain of salt. Mm. It, yeah, it just it really frustrates me when people um, try to sell that one way or the other is a better way mm. because I just think there's your agenda And your agenda isn't taking into account the individual perspective. Hmm. And what is right for one person won't necessarily be right for others. Um, There's not a particular right way to birth. There's not any mode of birth that in the literature is immune to birth trauma. Um, So people can have beautiful caesarean sections. I'm one of them. Hmm. People can have beautiful vaginal births. I'm also one of them. So, yes, I just think social media that's trying to sway you into a particular care pathway or mode of birth pathway as a preventative measure for birth or other trauma, then that's rubbish. Mm. <laughs> yeah, You know, of course, I'm fully supportive of preventative medicine. Mm. You know, if we could prevent birth or other trauma, then, you know, hallelujah, I could close my Instagram account and sit on my bum a bit more but it's not as simple as that you know you can't simplify such a complex topic that way and what I would say is that um, there are some things that will work in a preventative way continuity of care is one of them but our system isn't set up in a way to enable that for people now you know it's a select few that get access to continuity of care in the public sector unless you have the means to pay for it privately. We talked about mode of birth. You know, there's no mode of birth that's associated with a 0% rate of birth trauma. So, you know, we can focus on particular modes of birth, but I don't think that's going to prevent 100% of cases. If you look at the risk factors for birth trauma, you can address them, but you can't always prevent the fact that birth trauma will occur. And then there's people who have birth trauma who have absolutely no risk factors. So um, I think it's just incredibly complicated. Um, 
And, yeah, when I see people talking about preventing birth trauma, I just think you can try. You can you can set up a safer system for sure, but you're never going to prevent 100% of cases because that determination of whether it was traumatic or not, that sits with the person who's experiencing it. And, again, if we get everyone having beautiful unmedicated water births, quick labours, no bleeding afterwards, all of those things we like to see on paper, you are still going to get a proportion of those people who have birth trauma. Mm. Um, and it completely ignores the fact that the trauma can occur before or after as well. So, yeah. And that's the thing. The same applies to maternal mental ill health in general. Ex- let's let's exclude exclude birth trauma. Mm. You might not have any risk factors. Mm. That doesn't mean we're immune. Exactly. Yeah. Nor does it mean you aren't deserving of that preventative care. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I, <laughs> I mean, look, even talking continuity of care, I had that. Mm. So it, did I. Yeah. It yep. doesn't mean we're not going to be unscathed somehow yep. in this process. Yeah. And, yeah, that, that narrative I think is so damaging. Obviously we want to prevent trauma. No one mm. wants to go through this. No one would yep. wish it on anyone else. Yep. And it works both extremes. I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's, you know, just one or the other. Mm. Those stereotypes just or that narrative does such a disservice. Mm-hmm. And I wish we, like what you do, you look at that grey space, you look at the complexities, you look at it in a way that doesn't invalidate all types of trauma that can occur, Mm. all the reasons why those traumas occur. So thank you for that. Well, that's the best feedback I could hear. (laughs) (laughs) I sing your praises all the time. The, The work you do, I think, helps so many. As much as, you know, we wouldn't wish you to have gone through what you went through, yeah, that's you've right. You've helped yep. me and you've yep. helped so many others. Yeah, and in that sense it's um, it helps me live with it to work in this space too. You know, yes, I shouldn't have gone through it. It's incredibly unfair. I don't know how our story will end but, um, you know, it yeah, it helps me to know that I, without pumping my own tyres, I have a lot of power in the space because I've, I've done extra training, I'm researching actively Mm. and I have the lived experience. Even though I wish I could sit here singing the praises of (laughs) unmedicated natural midwifery care birth, you know. Of course. We all wish that. We wish it was that simple. No one wants to tell that story. No one wishes that story upon themselves or anyone else. That's right, yeah. And, you know, do I wish I could sit here and say, Oh, I went to a psychiatric hospital like within a yeah, few days of my yeah. son. No, that is not the story yeah. I wish I was telling. Yeah. But it's the story I have to share now because yeah. it's mine. That's yeah. my story. Just like yeah. your story is your story. Yeah. And and it led us both here, I guess. So yeah. yeah. And without pumping our tires, as you say, <laughs> I hope something comes out of this yeah. for someone yeah. else. Yeah. That they don't have to go through what we went yeah. through, or if they do go through it, they know they're not alone. Yep, hundred percent. This is the thing; it's just about saying you you are in a really shit time of life. I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to tell you that that it's okay to be feeling what you're feeling. It's not okay to be feeling what you're feeling. It's not nice, but mm. um, you are hundred percent not alone because this is so common and. You know, I'll just keep working until we have that acknowledgement that it's super common. Have the, 
you know, infrastructure in place that acknowledges how common it is. And there's such a buzzword going around that we need providers who are trauma-informed or we need trauma-informed care. And on paper, that sounds really good, but I know you have opinions about this and I would love you to share those, please, if that's okay. (laughs) So trauma-informed is a great um, blanket term, I guess, because it sounds great. It's actually a system-wide approach. So I, um, in my training, I don't believe that an individual is trauma-informed. We can be trauma-sensitive, trauma-safe, trauma-aware, but it is the system that has to be trauma-informed. And currently our healthcare systems, our most of our health services cannot call themselves trauma-informed, particularly when they are run as businesses and financial institutes. And, um, you know, when you've got the dollar as the bottom line, that goes against trauma-informed. So that's, I guess, my, in a nutshell, why I don't like it. I think it's a buzzword. I think people are applying it as a label that says, hey, look at me, I'm great. I'm trauma-informed. But it's so dangerous because in the vast majority, unfortunately, these people, these health services have not undergone the training to have an adequate understanding of psychological trauma to the point where they can say they're trauma safe trauma aware so that's why I have those thoughts on trauma informed and I would love to be wrong one day I would love to be able to say yes let's use the term trauma informed but unfortunately like many other things I think it's being mislabeled at the moment in many many cases yeah and I think the other side of the stick is that it's it's so easy to tag yourself with that label and say I'm Helen I'm trauma informed you're safe with me Mm. But at the end of the day, the only person that gets to determine whether they're safe with me is the person. It's really not a label I get to apply to myself. They get to determine whether I'm safe for them. Um, So, yeah, that's just food for thought, I guess. And that's why I love your page, because you make me think and feel, obviously, (laughs) but you make me think. Did you want to talk about not just your Instagram space, but your book, your research? Like, do you want to share a little bit about that? Yep. You know, you you obviously have produced these resources, not just for women going through this, but also for health professionals. Mm-hmm. I've been lucky that I've been able to have a read of said mm. book. Yeah. Um, and it's incredible. So. Yep. Um, I feel really uncomfortable with self-promotion, which is why you won't see much of it in my space. No. Um, But yes, so there are a couple of e-books. So one that's aimed at health professionals and one that's aimed at consumers. And really they are just about self-education. I've produced them in a way that allows me to sell them for as little cost as I possibly can. Um, because my aim is to get them in as many hands and eyes and brains as I can just to, I guess, prompt that awareness and information. Um, and, that, yeah, they, they were produced because I know the needs there. Um, I've also got a couple of free resources for consumers as well. Um, so there's, like, affirmation cards. There's um, requesting medical records, template, um, interviewing a prospective care provider you know if you're considering another pregnancy um just yeah these resources to try and make things a little bit easier um for people in the space moving forward i am always doing research um my phd isn't necessarily related to 
psychological trauma PhDs really are about getting research skills and I intend to use it in a way that I um, can produce research that's meaningful for people in the space of perinatal trauma. But it will be years and I'm hoping that there'll be another pregnancy that interrupts it. You know, I want to finish it, but, you know, at the same time I want to finish my family too. On that note, Mm. I want to give you just a bit of space because it didn't end with Lincoln. No, yeah, so our, our story we hope continues. Um, Mm. We spent the entire year of 2022 doing IVF (laughs) to Mm. try and get a healthy baby. Unfortunately, um, you know, for whatever reason, IVF is one of these battles where they can give you statistics and chances and no guarantees. And we are one of those couples where we haven't had those guarantees met. So, um, this stage we are looking to continue into 2023 in the hope that the IVF will work but it's been a major battle that I don't think even the doctors anticipated for us because again on paper we look like a healthy fertile couple so yeah it's one of those things that I I, I don't understand why it has to be so difficult for us um I I hoped going into IVF that we'd be one of these couples that got lucky first time around because I just thought, well, it has to happen at some point. You know, no one can have just bad luck after bad luck after bad luck. And, in fact, someone in my inner circle said that to me and it made me think, yeah, well, luck's under no one's control. You know, there's not a finite amount of bad luck that means suddenly next time you want something, you're going to get it. So IVF is another battle for us. Um, and it's one of those things that unfortunately no one can tell us how it will end. Um, but I guess what keeps us going is the hope that it will work out in our favour and we can finish our family with a healthy baby at home with us. But, yeah, that's where we're up to. <laughs> and, I mean, that in itself brings its own trauma. So we wouldn't even think yeah. to ask the questions or yeah. to screen or to support. Yeah. yeah, and this is the thing. I think I think society's pretty good at knowing that IVF is a bit of a big deal. Mm. And I, it was funny, I went into the journey with IVF thinking, all right, I have good knowledge, good resources, strategies to equip myself for the mental battles this will bring. And it was only a few weeks or months ago that I realised, hang on, this is starting to take over me now. I need to take a step back because this is becoming bigger than the other stuff that I'm already dealing with. And unfortunately, being in the IVF community now, I see those stories. But yeah, it just gives weight to the fact that it it's not only birth trauma. You know, some people can enter a pregnancy and it might be their first successful ongoing pregnancy, but they already have the trauma in the background and our maternity care system isn't structured that it's in a, in a way that it's standing ready to catch you when and if you fall. Yeah. 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 Even though we have huge amounts of literature that tell us, you know, there's IVF trauma, there's infertility trauma, there's pregnancy loss trauma, ectomic trauma, all of this before you get into a pregnancy. So if someone is having their first successful ongoing pregnancy, you know, I think there's a bit of a misconception that this person can't be coming into it with, you know, perinatal trauma. Mm. It's really not what the literature tells us and it's certainly not what people tell me. Yeah. I see it. So, yeah. And you've lived it. I've lived it, yeah. And maybe last question, Mm. how are you going now? (laughs) You've gone through a lot of shit. Yeah. You've 
I hate to say the word, you've learnt from your experience mm-hmm. in the sense that you've surrounded yourself with the right or hopefully the right supports and resources to protect yourself as yep. much as possible. How are you now? Well, I'm alive, so yeah. You are alive. Yep. That is a plus. Yeah, it is a plus, yeah. It's um, it's a day-by-day thing for me and I think this. I'm beginning to appreciate the fact that, yeah, this is what they said it would be. It's the rest of my life. Um, and particularly when a baby has died, you know, there's a someone who you pictured filling your family with who's forever not there. So, you know, some people don't understand why we feel it and put forward the baby loss so strongly and so prevalently because I think they see it as, you know, grandma died, so you don't put grandma on your Christmas cards anymore. But it's different. You know, we, we went into that pregnancy hoping that we would complete our family and put this chapter of our lives behind us and he's not here and he will never be with us again. Um, and he's a baby, you know. He he lost a chance to have a life that we, we expected for him. Um, so that's why I think every day is a different day and some days I'm really good and some days I'm not. And I'm getting better at, I'm by no means perfect. You know, I've probably, I've been on the horse a bit this little session, you know, talking about sitting in the shit. I, I'm okay at it, but I'm by no means perfect. And there are days that I'm very much not good at it at all. So, yeah, I think the answer is it depends on the day um, as to how I am. Today I'm okay. Yeah. I'm so grateful you took the time to chat to me today and to chat to all of us and to talk to us about your story, but also what you're doing and researching and educating us all about is life-changing. And that's for me and I can assume for many, many others. And And yeah, that's so nice to hear because, of course, that's why I put the time and energy into it is so that I can hopefully get through to some people who need it and make what is a really difficult time a tiny bit more tolerable. It just helps me live with it, I guess, you know. So thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for uh, your time and allowing me to chat on all of these topics. Anytime. You are welcome back. Anytime, always. (laughs) Look, I think think we could probably keep going. Every time you brought up language, I was like, oh, no. (laughs) It's like, here's another 10 minutes gone. (laughs) Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.